Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. What's up? It's Clocked In with Jordan Edwards here. Hey, what's going on, guys? I have a special guest here, Pete Costa. He's a former governor with the New York Stock Exchange, president of Empire Executions, which is a boutique trading firm on the New York Stock Exchange, a CNBC market analyst, and head of the Costa family office. Pete, how are we doing today? Doing well, Jordan. Doing very well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the Clocked In podcast. It's it's really fun, exciting. I've never had anyone in your field yet on here. So tell us, where did you where did where did you start growing up? Where did it all start? Well, I uh, Jordan, I grew up on Long Island. Um, a, you know, typical middle class, you know, upbringing. Um, older brother, older sister. Uh, you know, regular normal family on Long Island, and um, I. Uh, you know, at the time, I like to say I was the toughest kid in my cul-de-sac, you know, because everyone seem, seems to think that's pretty funny knowing me. But so I ended up going to the University of Tennessee. My brother had gone there and I followed in his footsteps and uh, got a degree in forestry. And, and what, what is forestry? Well, I was I actually had a, a forestry major and a business minor because I, I felt that I would, you know, learn, you know, management of timberlands. It wasn't oh, okay. I wasn't going to be a. Um, you know, the, the guys in forestry look at, you know, people that work for the state parks as uh, babysitters. We were, you know, it was more of an industrial forestry where, you know, you you would have a tract of land and you'd manage it and whatnot. And uh, I was literally probably the worst forestry student that school ever had. So I, uh, you know, I couldn't get a job when I got out. Uh, and all my friends were at the time, and, you know, we're talking 1980, 1981, all my friends were working on the trading floor. And th- to be honest with you, I mean, I love my friends, but they're not the smartest group of people you've ever met. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking these guys are doing really, really well. And, and meanwhile, I'm working at my sister's laundromat, folding <laughs> clothes for, you know, uh, homeless people. And and I see all my friends, you know, working on Wall Street. So a buddy of mine uh, got me an interview and I end- ended up getting a job and I ended up starting on the floor Ironically enough, uh, it was the day President Reagan got shot outside the hotel in in um, Washington D.C. So it was March thirty first, nineteen eighty one, and uh, I never left. And it was funny because I started dating who was then going to be my wife, but I started dating uh, you know this woman, and she was very Long Island, and you know she was glad I was working on Wall Street, and I got two job offers 
in forestry after I got the job. And I was like, you know, uh, she's not going. One of them was in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And yeah. uh, the guy was great. And he said, look, I'll be honest with you. There, you have to bring your own woman, women in because there were no women up here and none you want to meet. And it snows from, you know, October 1st to April 15th. So, you know, and I I didn't mind that, but I said, you know what? I really started liking working on the trading floor. Excuse me. And uh, so I stayed there. I mean, it was, uh, you know, incredible experience. Really was. Yeah, you started to get the flow there. So I'm glad you chose to stay on the floor. Was everyone getting into the New York stock? You're like the New York stock exchange, right? Yeah, it was on the trading floor. Uh, and at that time, there were, I'd say, probably about 4,500 to 5,000 people working on the way the New York Stock Exchange was. It, was. it was actually separated into four different rooms. So there was the main room, which is what you see on TV, and you still see it on TV. And then there was a garage, uh, a blue room, because the room was blue. And then there was an extended blue room. And at in each room, there were, in the garage, there were four posts. In the main room, there were seven posts. In the blue room, there were three posts. And at the post is where brokers traded. Okay. It would go like, you know, IBM would be traded at post five. And, and Coca-Cola was at post seven. And, uh, you know, every stock traded in one, spe- uh, one specific spot. So when I first started, I had to learn, like, all the locations of all the stocks because that was part of the job. And there were 2,800 stocks. And I was like... Oh my God. But we, you know what the funny thing is, I mean, it was, it might seem archaic, but it actually worked really well is that there would be um, maps around the trading floor. So you knew where everything was. Yeah. And then there were books that they, you know, the exchange would print up every three months because, you know, stocks moved around and they would have the location of all the stocks in those books. And then there were computer screens or monitors. And then when you hit up the, let's say a stock like, you know, U.S. Steel, it would tell you the location. So you oh, okay. like, you know, X, which is U.S. Steel, and would say it was at post 12E. So you know where everything was. So it was, I mean, there were ways around not knowing where the stocks were, but, you know, when you first get down there, you really want to know because it really helps in, you know, the the your job, doing your job properly is knowing where the locations are because, you know, brokers can only move a certain distance in a certain amount of time. So, if you have, you know, let's say you get an order from a client and it's in Motorola, which was in the garage, which is a full city block away. Yeah. Then you get an order in, you know, IBM, which is, you know. And, what, and just for the audience, what's an order real quick? In order, in order to buy or sell shares. Okay. So, yeah, like an institution or even an individual would, you know, enter an order electronically or over the phone and want to buy a thousand shares of IBM, you know, yeah. for their portfolio. Yeah. And, you know, we would get the order and then we would go out and execute it and come back and report it back to the client. Because the price fluctuates. Yeah, the price day. fluctuates. And, and and one of the reasons that they had brokers, because they felt that brokers at that time uh, could could save them money by using their instincts and their connections. And, and you know, there, there were a lot of things that went into a good execution where people were getting better prices. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and time was not necessarily the top factor now time is, but back then it was more about price and, you know, getting a better price for your client. Um, you know, and there were other ways they could do it, but they would prefer to have a broker do it because a broker would use his skill and his intuition to try and get the best price. It didn't always work that way, but I'd say more often than not, a broker would 
uh, because of that um, skill and the relationships and understanding markets, brokers would generally do better uh, with an order. So, you know, it was worth paying the money to have a broker execute that order at that time. You're talking so 1980s. Yeah. So just a quick example. I want to buy, I'm your client. I call you. I want a thousand shares of IBM. Right. What are you, how do you get a better price? Well, what we would do is, you know, because I would go out into where IBM was traded and I would understand what the market was doing at the time. And there was a lot of factors, you know, what the Dow was doing because IBM was the main component of the Dow Jones. Uh, you know, you talk to the specialist who was the uh, <clears throat> market maker who was responsible for making a fluid market in every, you know, in the stocks he was assigned and the market maker would tell you, you know, who's buying, who's selling. And if I had to buy a thousand shares for you and there's four sellers, I might not buy it when I walk in because with four sellers, generally because just because of the principles of economics, you know, there's more supply or more demand. Yeah. At the time there's more supply. So the price goes down and I could, if I wait a few minutes, I can get a better price for my client. Gotcha. Or gotcha. if there's four buyers, you know, then I'm aggressively, I will aggressively buy that 1000 shares for you. And there'll be a lot of other activity outside of that, but more often than not, the stock is going to continue to go up. So knowing that and knowing the specialist and knowing the brokers in the trading crowd, you know how the stock is going to trade. It only takes, for me, it only took like five seconds. I could tell you what was going on in five seconds. Some brokers, it took longer. You know, I, my, one of the things I was a, I was a terrible mechanical broker, meaning that I would, I couldn't add subtract for the life of me on <laughs> but I could go into a crowd and I could definitely uh, feel how a stock was trading, what was going on, who I trusted. Cause sometimes brokers would not give, um, I mean, it's not that they would lie, but they wouldn't give all of the information. It's chaotic. It's chaotic at this point, right? It, it like could be. Yes. And there were, there were times it was very chaotic and you had to react very quickly and you had to, you know, you had to make a decision, you know, and, and there were, you know, it was a, um, a business of people with very strong A type personalities. Yeah. So there sure. a lot of them. I didn't, ha I don't have an A type personality, but I used the fact that I didn't have it as to my advantage. You had to figure that I had to figure that out that I didn't yeah. have that aggressive A, A type personality. Um, uh, but I had different skills. So, yeah. And I also hired people that could add very quickly. So whenever I was busy with an order, a very big order, they were on top of it and they would come out and tell me, you leave this and, you know, this is where you're at. And, you know, ex you know, they, I just did what I could do best. And then I let everybody who was better at it than me do it. You know, that was part of being able to, you know, be successful is being able to delegate, uh, you know, the responsibilities in the overall picture. And that was one of the things I did was I yeah. delegated. And I, I kind of want to emphasize that because when you're trying to do everything, like I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not very good at the social media aspect. So you bring in a social media person. Yeah. I'm not very good at some of the YouTube or any, anything like the accounting. I got an accounting degree, so I would probably do the accounting stuff. Right. But if it's outside your realm, you can really outsource the different. Yeah. People. I mean, that that's how uh, you know companies become successful is because they you know you, you can't be all things to all people. I mean yeah. there there isn't anybody that can possibly do that. You know, and and the thing is, as as your business grows and our business was growing, 
uh, you know, you know, the people that were up above me, you know, the owner of the firm and and my superiors all knew that my skill set laid in the trading part of it and the, uh, you know, my ability to communicate to our clients. Yeah. Whereas some of our other people that worked in, in our firm didn't have, um, didn't have the best communication skills because they were street people. You know, they, they talk rough. They, they, they didn't have time to chat clients like me because the, the world could be falling apart, but you'd never be able to tell from my voice. You know, I was always, Oh, okay. and that, that's a, that's another skill that, you know, you know, the people I work with realized that I had better than anybody else is that I had a better relationship with our clients. And that was, I mean, you know, that's gold because that's where the money comes from. And those relationships, you know, I would go out and visit them. You know, I would, I would, uh, you know, I wasn't one to take them to the Super Bowl, but they didn't want that. You know, they wanted a, somebody that they can talk to and, and if they're pissed off, they can give, you know, express it. And you're not going to have an argument with me because you know what, if a client most times in this industry, in that industry, it's not everywhere, but in that industry, most times if a client and our clients were very good, if they're pissed off, they had a good reason to be. So that that's where I had to be able to agree with them and not throw my firm under the bus at the same time. So it was, you know, it was a tricky, it was a tightrope that I walked a lot. Um, but you know, I was good at it. So it was people appreciated. And a lot of times they just wanted to vent, you know, and that, that's yeah. the whole point is that they're they're The one interesting thing about wall street at that time, and I think it's still a lot like this now, even though it's, it's more about technology um, is that, you know, at four o'clock when the bell rings or at the end of the day, it's the end of the day. You know, there's not, that's not going to be carried over to tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. It's, you know, a momentary situation. It dies down very quickly because you have to move on to something else. So, you know, I understood that my, my people I work with understood that and our clients understood that they can vent when they're mad about an execution or about something happening that was unexpected but they know, number one, that we're on their side. We're not against them. So that was an yeah. important thing. That was one of the reasons why our firm succeeded is because they knew that we were on their side. You know, we were representing them and, and we were fighting for them and we weren't going to let anybody take advantage of us. You know, but we also had to operate in a, you know, in, in an atmosphere where you had to work with other people. But our main focus was always on our clients. So, I mean, we built a huge business from that. And, you know, that was just one of the many things. And like I said, I didn't add or subtract well. And, you know, sometimes I'd hear an eighth or a quarter or the pricing was a little off. And, and you know, they understood that. And it was never really a problem as far as financially. But it was a pain in the neck because, you know, uh, I can't believe you can't add, you know, subtract 19 from 15, you know, or 1500, yeah. whatever. I mean, it was just, but, you know, they're, not everybody was perfect, you know, and, and, Everyone, you know, one of the good things about our firm is that everyone knew everyone's, you know, their their strengths and weaknesses. And that, yeah. to me, that's a, you know, manager, a good manager knows his people's yeah. strengths and weaknesses. And my boss was an excellent manager. He was very, very tough guy. Probably one of the toughest guys uh, you could ever ask to work for. But he knew people's strengths and weaknesses. And that was, was this, was this your first boss? 
No, no, no. This was the firm that I was with. And, you know, I was with them for 26 years uh, at, at Francis P. Maglio. Okay. Yeah, I was there. That was the bulk of my career. And that was where, you know, I, I, I think that was, you know, that was the best 26 years I could ever spend. It was just, it was just awesome. It really was. But we worked hard, you know, and, and we had a very tough boss. He was, um, he was tough, but fair. For sure. And question, as a person just on the outside of the stock exchange, I've always been a fan of investing and all that stuff. What was a lot of people in corporate America want to progress. They want promotion, promotion, promotion. What was it that drove traders? Just bigger deals or just managing their own book or? Well, it was, it was more about, um, you know, maintaining the first thing is you want to maintain your, your business because that's the, what pays the bills and, you know, there was never, I mean, there was, I mean, you're talking to 5,000 people. There are some people that they're, they may work for Goldman Sachs or they might have worked for Morgan Stanley and, and they're, you know, they wanted a corporate job in their ladder and they felt that, you know, working in trading would get them on the trading desk and then get them in management and then become a partner and so on. Yeah. So there were people that, that aspired that to more than the trading floor. But by and large, most of the people on the trading floor at that time were aspiring to, you know, keep a constant flow of business, which, you know, thankfully there was almost guaranteed for a period of time because you really, you could have been the dumbest person in the world and, and had a successful business down there. And there were plenty of dumb people. I mean, there were people so stupid that it boggles your mind that these guys are driving around in Maseratis, that this, this guy's as dumb as a dishwasher. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. But, you know, they're, they're, the bulk of the people were more about building out their business and expanding their business and creating business opportunities for them, you know, to create more revenue. I mean, there really wasn't a managerial type of thing. I mean, you know, internally in each firm, everybody was always striving to be, you know, the head clerk and, and then become a broker because it was a, you know, it's almost like a... Um, I wouldn't say a pecking order, but there was an order, you know, you, you, you started working for a firm. Now we were an independent firm, so we weren't affiliated with a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman Sachs yeah. we were an independent firm. And you would start on the firm and then you would, you know, they would give you more and more responsibilities, which is how I became what I became is I got more responsibilities. They saw that I was good at certain things. Um, and then as time goes on, you know, there's always an, um, turnover because people, you know, at some point want to go work for somebody else. So then you move up from turnover, you know, you, you the head clerk, I became the head clerk for six years. And what, our, what is that clerk, role? What is that? Well, head clerk controls everything. You know, they're basically in, in 1980, well, even before 1980, but up until about 1995 or 93, let's say the head clerk was, he ran the show. I mean, what he said was because he, you know, his responsibility was in our firm, it was my responsibility was to keep the brokers under control, to do what I tell them to do, and to make sure all of the clerical staff were doing was doing what they were supposed to be doing. So I had to maintain the relationships with all the clients. I had to make sure the brokers were, you know, following the instructions they were given. Because I mean, you have egos and people sometimes believe that they know better than the client, you know, what, how, to, how to get something done. And my job was to, if I think he's right, 
I'm going to back them up with the client. Like a client may give you a direction, ABC. That's it. That's what he wants done. But the broker might feel that ABC is not going to work, but DEF will work better. Now, okay. my job was to say, I don't think DEF is going to work. Follow what he's telling you to do or go ahead and go the way you want to go about it. I'll talk to them. You know what I mean? So it was like you, so you it was the quarterback who actually calls the shots in which yeah, case the head clerk the head clerk for many years especially with our firm because my boss you know trusted me more than anybody else in the firm because my relationship with the clients was so tight that even if broker my broker messed up an order they'd never know it the client would never know it because i would talk them into saying, look, this is really the right thing to do. This is why we did this. This is where, you know, this yeah. is what, you know, and, and give them like a, because they had to go to a client themselves or they had to explain to a portfolio manager, um, why, why did they do, why did the brokers do the, you know, execute the order that way? So and that's huge communicate. So yeah, communication. I, and I would, I would create scenarios. Frame it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I would package something better for them. So this way <clears> they'd feel better about, you know, well, we didn't do what we were told to do, but we it worked out better because we're at the point of sale. We're in the trading crowd, and yeah. they trusted us. So it wasn't that became easier and easier when I was right more and more. You know what I yeah. mean? They trust you know they trusted what I had to say, and they and yeah. a lot of times they wouldn't even give me instructions. They would just say, you know, do what you do best. Well, all right, all right, perfect. Now it's easy. Yeah, you know, and it, and it was and we had. Um, some of the biggest clients on wall street and they would basically let us do what we needed to do. And uh, every client would come back and say, I would have never thought to do it that way, but that worked out better than I could ever, you know, and they would, and that's why. And then every time you would do something and if you messed up every once in a while and it happened because markets change and people's decision yeah. might be a little skewed for some reason, they they let it go because they say, well, these guys, you know, 85% of the time they do better than I'm expecting. 10% they do exactly what I'm expecting. So if 5% of the time something gets messed up, I'm not worried about it. So, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, you, you, you had some leeway because your reputation and, and, and your relationship was extremely important. So, so as you get long, as you're there longer and longer, they get to know you better. Yeah. And there's more trust going on there. Yeah. And, and know, it, it was, yeah. you know, it was never a, it was a huge, you know, huge thing uh, because clients would go to us instead of like their normal brokers because there were certain stocks in certain situations that yeah. they trusted us with and they wouldn't give it to the broker they normally would give that order to. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was, yeah, that, that was, that's also, you know, um, it's a sticking point with some firms that worked on the trading floor because, you know, there was almost like an unwritten rule about, you know, you don't really go after somebody else's clients. You know, you, you kind of, yeah. I mean, if they go to you, that's one thing, but if you go after them, that that's, um, you know, there's a lot of unwritten rule, rules in this world. And that's one of them is you try not to, we didn't, but people would come to us because of when, you know, reputation or yeah. Whatever. When did the prospecting go on? If you guys are in the floor from, I'm guessing like eight thirty nine to four p.m., it's just a bum rush. Everyone's doing everything. When are these relationships getting built, and how are you building them? Well, one of the things was, you know, you, you know, we 
when I first started on the floor, you could not make an outside phone call from the booth. It was illegal. Okay. So that, you know, that was, we had our accounts and, you know, one of the things that was really, uh, and this was prevalent everywhere. It wasn't just with our firm is that if you did business with broker A, you know, a customer who was a, he had seven traders on the desk and you got along with all seven of them, which generally we did two of them leave to go to another firm. Well, now they're at this new firm and they want to use us because they have a good relationship with us. So now you have the customer A and now you have customer B. So now you've gained another customer. But yeah. you didn't lose any you didn't lose any business from customer A because they just filled the seats, you know, and the bro- they use us. Yeah. Now customer B is using us. So that was one way and that was for for a long time that was, you know, the way. Uh then we started uh, doing a little prospecting from the trading floor. When I can make outside phone calls, I would call, you know, people I met, you know, I'd go to a lot of different, um, I'd go to a lot of different events. Like there were a lot of trader conventions and okay. meet people there and, you know, and, 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 you know, they had heard of our firm and then I make them a, you know, I make a call and I'd start talking to them, you know, and then you, you, you build up a, a, a relationship, a cordial relationship. And then, then you start talking a little bit of business. And then as you're talking to him and saying, well, you know, I don't know if you have an interest, but we, you know, we've been buying X, Y, Z. And the guy says, well, you know what? I've been selling it for two days and it's been a nightmare. I said, well, now you have a client because yeah. now he's going to give you the order. He's going to want you to facilitate him as well as you're facilitating your original customer. So you, you know, that was, that was a big way of getting business. And we were very good at that. Yeah. You know, and, and then we had a marketing staff later on and, and the marketing staff, um, they, they, they didn't do as good a job as they probably should have. Yeah. But there were, we had a couple of, um, big opportunities that, you know, I had to go, I mean, I didn't, not saying that I saved the firm or anything, but you know, this guy was in constantly in contact with <clears throat> some state pension and uh, he wasn't getting anywhere. And so I said, well, why don't we fly out there and meet him? Set up an, a meeting. You know, they meet a floor broker. It's always better to have a floor broker meet a client in Denver, Colorado. Because yeah. nobody goes to Denver, even though it's a big hub of business. Nobody ever goes out there. So we went out there and he got like seven appointments with like all these different firms over two days. And, uh, you know, he, we went to the state capitol. Actually, no, we had five accounts because, oh, wow. yeah, because a broker, they ask questions that our marketing guy can't answer because he's not yeah. a broker, but they, you know, like they'll have the, had the state, the state treasurer from Denver, very sharp guy, you know, from Colorado, very sharp guy. He, um, he gets his trader in there and, and by the time we're done, they want to give us all their business. <laughs> And it was like my boss. You just needed like, to put the right guy there. Yeah, so you know what? Guys, it, just because I can sell the firm because I believe in it. Number one, and it, yeah, you can see I'm I, I can talk forever and I can answer almost any question. And the questions, you know, and I think they really appreciate it because they asked a couple of questions I couldn't answer. And I told them I have absolutely no clue how to answer that question. And they, yeah. they I think they really appreciated the fact that I didn't sit there and try to bullshit them, you know. And yeah. So, you know, that was another thing is I think that people, and this is anywhere, I think people respect honesty, you know, and, and if you Absolutely. answer a question, you know, I'll either get back to you or 
I'll get you in touch with somebody who can answer that question. And that was basically how we ended it. And they, yeah. two days later, they would ring in the phone off the hook. So. <laughs> yeah, being proactive about it. So when that's happening, are people just covering for that guy's spot when he's not there? Or he went on like the weekend or like, how does that work? What do you mean? Like, I know people aren't really supposed to leave the floor. No, when I when I left, we had, you know, we had enough coverage, you know, and, and okay. Yeah, what what you do is the marketing guy was separate from the trading floor. So yeah, when I left to go to, to Colorado and to go to Austin and to go to Cleveland and go to all the different cities, you know, they they had um, brokers that could fill in. You know, we okay. had brokers that they were independent brokers that would do, you know, if things got really busy, they could handle it. And, uh, you know, they got paid for it. You know, they got paid commissions. Uh, so, you, you know, you just make sure that you have enough people in place. And, uh, you know, the, I, I think the few times I went out to Austin twice, and both times it was during the summer. So you can only imagine how hot it was. Yeah. And, um, but it was the summer used to be a lot slower. Okay. So having a broker leave the floor or having the head clerk leave the floor for three days, it, it wasn't really that big a deal. You know, you didn't want to do it in September, October, November, December, because that was the busiest time of the year. Yeah. So, but, it, you know, you make do, yeah, you and, figure it out. And was it as crazy as people said regarding? No. There were, there were instances where it got crazy at times. Uh, well, the crash in 1987 obviously was yeah. a, a very busy time. But there were other periods where the markets had really big moves and, and it got busy. The The busier times are when news breaks out in an individual stock and you have to get in there and there's a lot of activity. Um, that was when it was crazy. But for the most part, it was a um, controlled chaos. You know, that's what we used to call it, controlled chaos, because if you looked at the trading floor and you can look at any video you want, you know, on YouTube and you'll see the trading floor, it just looks like, you know, ants running, you know, aimlessly in different directions, but every broker and everybody that's moving around that trading floor is moving to a location from a previous location. So it's, there's constant movement back and forth. You know, we had a, and it wasn't just me, it was like eight other guys put on, they had done some experiment and we put on a, I don't know what they call a pedometer, like a I guess. Bit. Well, like a Fitbit, but it was before they they had the technology, and it was basically it mounted it counted your steps. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, you knew that you every step you took was two point six feet, right, or two point eight feet, or whatever it was. Yeah. And they the exchange had like people there, and they would, you know, at the end of the day, I took twenty six thousand nine hundred steps. All right. They measured it out that the brokers, you know, I mean, I was probably a little bit more because I covered more ground. But uh, it was like an average of nine and a half miles a day <laughs> walking around on the trading floor. And uh, I have to tell you, man, I, you know, and a lot of people had problems with their knees. I thank God I didn't have any problem with my knees because you think about all that walking you're doing and that's every day. Yeah. And you're standing. You don't sit. So you're standing, you know, from eight o'clock in the morning until, you know, quarter after four or four thirty. And there's like no lunch breaks, no not like. Well, I mean, you eat a lunch, but you, we used to eat a lunch in the booth, and the booth was a very small contained space. And you know, when I was the head clerk, I would I never ordered in in down on the trading floor. I could tell you right now, I never ordered my own lunch, and I never picked up a lunch ever. And I, <laughs> I was very proud of that when I retired. And I was like, you know, I never picked up lunch ever. 
there was always somebody, you know, you had interns, you had, yeah, you always had somebody who was going to go pick it up. And for 15, probably 15 years, I never ordered my own lunch. And my partner who was like work next to me, he would order my lunch every day. He goes, you look like you, you, know, you can use a, you know, roast beef on a roll with salt, pepper and ketchup. Yeah. That's what I'm having. So I, you know, I would get it and you know, you'd eat, you know, when you had a chance, um, you know, there was a place where on the exchange, you could go up to the luncheon club and have like a, eat like a civilized person. But <laughs> we never had the time. Yeah. And, you know, we belonged to the luncheon club, so we could order from up there and the food was actually very good. Uh, but, you know, some days you'd order it. We, you know, I'd never you order anything hot because I'd never. You wouldn't even be able to get to it. Excuse me? You wouldn't even be able to get up there to get the food. No, I would never. I wouldn't leave the floor for that long. You know, if I go off the floor, I go to the bathroom. I mean, you know, I didn't smoke cigarettes, so I basically just went off to the bathroom, and that was it. So that was my other question: Were people doing like illegal substances? Like, was it as? You know what? I, I have to be honest with you. I mean, they you know they can write everything they want about like how wild it was. I didn't see that. I do know some people that had issues sneak it in. Yeah. Well, I mean, not really on the trading floor because, you know, you you had you had to be very focused on what you were doing because if you made a mistake, it cost money. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody was, you know, uh, doing cocaine, uh, did it make them a better broker? I don't know. I don't know anybody in my firm. You know, they didn't, they didn't do that. We hired people that had drug problems. But if you really think about it, um, if you, in the 80s and 90s, if you had a, a accumulation of 5,000 people, the chances of having people in there that have some sort of substance abuse problem are pretty high. You're going to have people that yeah. have problems. And uh, we had, you know, we had two people that had problems with, uh, they never did anything on the floor, but they, you know, they would, there would be times where they wouldn't show up to work for two days. And, you know, yeah, that wasn't, that didn't really cut it. But, you know, my, the, my senior partner, my boss had a, like a, a warm spot for one of the guys. So he kept firing this guy and then he kept rehiring him like six months later. So, you know, we was like Billy Martin with the Yankees. You know, every time he, you know, you turn around, he'd be, and he was, he was a great guy. I loved him and he was funny as hell, but he had problems, you know, he had a, he had yeah. a major, he had a major drug problem, but for the most part, I, I didn't see, and I went out a lot after work, but mo- everything I saw was a lot of drinking. So, yeah. You know, and that's because they were meeting with their clients or they were just yeah, you know, sometimes, yeah, blowing off steam too. You know, you have yeah. a really busy day and you want to, you know, try to just forget about how compressed for a second. Yeah. You know, you want to have a couple of drinks and, you know, we were everyone that was, but that's, I mean, that's like that. And, you know, that's most jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they're all, you know, that's a big, um, yeah, it's a big part of business is, you know, yeah. after hours and meeting people and, and, you know, a lot of times, a lot of things get solved, you know. Yeah. Most of our clients weren't in New York, so that that was uh, that was the other thing is that we didn't have we had two clients in New York, and uh, one set of clients said, you know, they said that we'll go out to dinner with you once a year. We don't go out with any of our people, but we'll go out once a year because we like you guys. And the other people said the same exact thing. So we had two clients in New York, big trading desk, and they only went out once a year with them each, and. <laughs> And my boss was happy because that you know you go that's where to do too. yeah it's expensive, but uh, they 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 didn't want that they didn't want to be you know wined and dined that wasn't their thing. <clears throat> yeah, no, I definitely hear that. So my next question is: 
when you got to 2008 and you created your own firm, what was the rationale? How'd you get it on the exchange? What were you thinking? Well, what happened was, I mean, when I, I mean, as far as like a career arc, it, it kind of like yeah. mine morphed into this. I was, I worked for Bear Stearns and yeah. Bear, you know, they, the, the guys on the floor were great and the guys on the trading desk were great, but they had a very unique um, structure as far as like paying people and, and just their, their financial structure was different than any other firm on Wall Street. The highest you could get paid, there was a dollar amount that no one in the firm got paid any more than that. But what you would end up doing is you would get part of your bonus and part of, you know, the bonuses would be huge. So this way, if they had a bad year, they can still pay their employees what, and there'd be no bonuses. What's like a huge, just to give people... Well, let, let's, I signed a contract and my contract was, you know, their top pay, their head of the firm, Ace Greenberg, got paid $200,000 a year. That was okay. What year is this? What year is this? This would be 2006, I think 2006, okay. I was seven, yeah. right around that time. And but he would get a $50 million bonus, <laughs> you know. I mean, and they all would get these huge bonuses. But the only thing was, the only a very small percentage of them would be paid in cash, they paid everyone in stock. So oh, when so I signed my deal, problem. Yeah. yeah, when I signed my deal, I got, you know, the max because I came in as a senior vice president. I got, let's say, $100,000 in cash as a bonus and everything beyond that, which I didn't, I mean, obviously, I didn't read the fine print on the uh, the contract. Yeah, you're just like, yo, give now me a million. It, it, it was in Bear Stearns stock and I'm looking at my check and I'm saying, there's a lot of money missing from here. And then the guy who I work with said, no, that you got that all in stock. And I said, I don't want their stock. So what happened was I had to bring in a certain amount of revenue. And you know what? I wasn't I wasn't in a place to go out and try to get revenue and bring in accounts. And so they ended up letting me go, firing me, which I already had a job waiting for me. You know, I already had a job. The guy who offered me a job, he said, the minute you leave there, you got a job here. You got a job here until we close the place. Because I, you know, I was good friends with them. So, you know, they fired me. And then she said, well, you know, I said, what about my stock? And she said that it, you have a, you know, it's a year vesting period. Yeah. So I said, all right, I mean, you know, whatever. I have enough money. I'm not worried about it. So I go to work and, um, you know, this is just pure luck. But like my partner at the time said, hey, it's your year anniversary here. And I, I said, oh, that's great. You know, we went out for a drink and I'm saying the year anniversary. I'm thinking, I'm thinking like year anniversary. Now you can tell the stock. My stock is vested. So what I did was I said, you know what? I can use that money. And I uh, sold my stock the next day. What, what day? What day? It was, well, stock was, was straight at 100. It was straight at $166 a share. Yeah, I'm excited. Right? Yeah. So I sold, you know, it was like I, I, maybe 3,000 shares. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of money. It was $420,000. And I, you know, I, when I was vested, it wasn't nearly that much. I got invested at $106 a share. So I had a nice yeah. profit. Uh, four months later, the stock's trading at $2. I do it. I went out I of business. Yeah. I'm like, I, and I, I even went up to my partner at the time and I said, you know, if you didn't remind me, I would, I never even thought about it. And if he didn't remind me, I would have never sold the shares. So, you know, it was like just time, you know, Life is about timing, 
You know, yeah. I've been very fortunate like that, I have to say. So, but Absolutely. You know, I, I, you know, when I started working, it was with um, another firm and uh, it was, we had a great business and we were, I mean, it was 2007, 2008. So it was, you're, you're talking about the market starting to start to crater because yeah. of the financial crisis, but we were busier than we ever were. And the guy I work with ended up becoming a, um, he was a bad guy. Yeah. You know, and you'd never know it. If you ever met him, you'd say, oh man, I, I he's so much, because he's so freaking funny. And, yeah. and he was good at what he did, but he just had this thing about spending money that he didn't have. Oh no. And he wasn't paying bills. He, we were all getting paid, but the firm was making a lot of money. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why isn't, you know, like the exchange wasn't getting paid. Verizon wasn't getting paid. People weren't getting paid. And then we had it out and he ended up closing the firm. So we started Empire Executions right after that. Oh, in okay. Of, in the middle of the market tanking, we were, I got to tell you, we were, you'd never believe how busy we were. We started this firm. We were profitable from day one. Because you already had the clients and everything. We already had the clients. So, you know, when, when I called up, I mean, he, he had two or three clients and, and they were good. They were good clients. They, they didn't want to go with us. They wanted to stay with him, which is, was totally Valid. fine. But what, what happened was we had developed other clients and, you know, one guy knew another guy and another guy knew, oh, they're starting a new business. Let's give them, you know, people like the guys I work with and yeah. everybody tried to give us business to, you know, to get us. Meanwhile, we had more business than we can handle because, oh, wow. yeah, because we had people that were saying, oh, I, you know, I really like Costa. I really like this guy, this other guy, Frank McCartney. He was, he worked for Opco. Opco gave us all their business on the trading floor. So it was like, you know, the first month we, we generated, I mean, a tremendous amount of business and it ended up really, you know, as business started leveling off, it really helped us, you know, get through some tough times. So. But it was, you know, an odd time to start a business during a financial crisis. But it was also probably the best time. And you know, how, everyone was busy. How does that even go about that? You're like, do you go with the LLC and do that whole route, or do you like? Yeah, no, we we we, uh, we started uh, an LLC in August of 2008, and um, you know, we and then you apply to be on the floor, or like, do you like apply to be? Yeah, we had to apply the exchange, but you know, I mean, I was the president. Yeah, I mean, I was established already, and uh, we we bought a broker dealer, which to operate in a lot of different capacities. You can operate as a as a broker on the floor. All you have to do is pay the exchange a fee, but we wanted to do more than that, so we bought a broker dealer uh, license from uh, this woman who was down there, and she was leaving the floor, and she had one, and we you know we ended up buying it from her. And it was the best thing we ever did because it allowed us to do a lot of different types of business and it added expenses because if you're just a broker on the floor executing orders, you only have to answer to the New York Stock Exchange. And they're they're simple. They, you know, you have certain things you need to do, you do them, you have yeah. no problem. But when you become a broker dealer, you are now uh, under the auspices of FINRA. So now oh, wow. yeah, FINRA is a... Uh, it's a quasi-government agency that the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ kind of like own or they're involved yeah. with. I don't really know the, the makeup of it now, but uh, they are regulators. I mean, they they regulate the self-regulators. So 
they check your books and you got to make sure that, you know, you cross the I's and dotted the T's and yeah, they're on well, you they, they're, and they come in and they do full scale um, audits every year. So that's an expense. You know, that was uh that was an expensive yeah. undertaking, but it, it helped. It helped our business and, and what, we sold it, you know, what more were you allowed to do with the broker dealer? Well, with a broker dealer, you can, you know, if you register, you can do direct business with with you. I could, you know, you live in New Jersey, right? Yeah. No, I'm registered. Once you become a broker dealer, you have to register with certain states. New York State, it costs $12. California, it costs $5,000. Texas, it's like a nightmare. But, you, you know, you have to register for each individual state. So if a client is in Cleveland, Ohio, you have to be registered with the state of Ohio. And if you don't have a broker dealer, you can't register. So oh, it gives you access okay. to do business around the country or around so, the world if you want. So this might be incorrect, but is it valued still with the accessibility of what we have now? With uh, like Robinhood? Theoretically, even though we have technology, yeah, and technology gives people access to execute on multiple venues. You know, you want to buy Platform, a thousand yeah. shares of micro, Microsoft, you have no idea where it's going. All you know is you bought a thousand shares of Microsoft. Well, for that firm, if you go through Robinhood, Robin, let's say you're using Robinhood, right? We'll use them because that that's like the, the thing. That's that simple one, yeah. <clears throat> Robinhood has to be registered in all 50 states because they have to, they're doing business in all 50 states. So, oh, yeah, so they have to be a, yeah, they have to be a broker dealer and they have to be registered in every state that somebody is going to send them an order. Even yeah. though the order is being electronically it's done in the ether somewhere, you know, it's done on some hard drive somewhere. It doesn't matter. It's it's the the technicality of having an order come from another state cross state lines. So, if they had offices in all 50 states and everybody who was in on Robinhood, they sent their order and it went to their office in, you know, you're in Arizona, it goes to Phoenix. They didn't have to, you, you wouldn't have to because you're not crossing state lines. But the minute you cross state lines, you have to be registered and you have to have full certification. So that's what, you know, the advantage is that you can do business in multiple, you know, and we could send orders out. We can do a lot of different things. Whereas if yeah. you're just a broker on the floor, you can only execute orders on the floor. We could, you know, if we needed to, we didn't, but we, if we needed to, we could have executed like Microsoft is not a New York stock exchange stock. It's a NASDAQ stock. Somebody wanted to give us an order on Microsoft. We could execute it electronically because we had it the opens act- up. It opens up your ability. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it opens your ability saying. for more revenue. But for you right now, like say you were going to start a firm in 2021, would you get the broker deal or like, cause is I, it- I would, I would. And I think that, I think you pretty much, if you're going to execute, orders unless you only if you're only going to do business in one state which is nearly impossible you yeah know, I mean, it, it really is impossible you need to have a broken dealer and you know it, it's it's not an expensive undertaking to go through but it takes a long time yeah. so what when we bought the broken dealer from this woman it took us two weeks from point a to point f to get it done, it cost 50 grand and we we had it, we were set and it was, you know, our business was set. So, but if you want to start from scratch, you know, it, it you still need, you probably need to get a lawyer, but you really, 
I mean, if you ever go on and see what you need to do, you don't really need a lawyer because it's not that complicated. It just takes a long time. Yeah. You know, and so they, the girl helps. Yeah. I mean, she it's like you accelerate it. Yeah. I mean, if you buy, you know, I had a somebody who wanted to buy our, our broker dealer and, uh, you know, we were in negotiations to sell it and uh, the guy, it fell apart. It was a shame because he wanted he wanted to give us a lot of money and, and would have maintained the business. He just would have owned it and not us. I wouldn't have no I would have no problem with that at all. But it, it, the deal fell apart and he ended up not doing anything. Oh really? Yeah. So I mean, you know, it was probably the best thing that happened was it didn't happen. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. And then I know that you were also a governor for with the New York Stock Exchange. Is that different than the clerkship, or what? Yeah, what no, is that? Well, a governor is a. Um, when I was a governor, it was, uh, you know, now they still have governors on the trading floor. Generally, governor, what he does, he uh, adjudicates uh, disputes. Number one, so if two people are arguing about something, they go to a governor, and whatever the governor's decision is about that particular situation, it stands. It's like legal and binding. So there were a lot of, you know, I, I mean, when we were really busy, there were a lot of instances where people were having disagreements and they needed governors to, you know, untangle. And when, when were you doing this? What year? I, was, uh, I think I was a governor. I was a governor for longer than I should have been because I think they forgot about me because <clears throat> the governor was only a governor is only a governor for six years and I was a governor for 12. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think they just forgot. Forgot. That's what I think. I think they just. So was this, were you doing this also on top yeah, of your. Yeah, it was, and the governor. And as when you're a governor, your governorship and your responsibilities takes precedent over your orders, you know, over your business. Oh, so wow. I'm really busy. And there's some need for a governor to be involved and they, they want me involved. My business takes us back seat. So, that, you know, that's one of the things that oh, some people didn't want to be a governor because it affected and impacted their business. So why'd you do it? I liked it. I like, you know, it was still looks good on the resume, you know. Uh, I feel like it's a giving back. Yeah, well, I, that was the main thing is I thought it was. I mean, the exchange had, had had given me everything and it was a way to give back to the exchange and and be involved and, and be a, a positive force. You yeah. Know, you know, and that that's the thing that, you know, some people don't realize that, um, you know, when we were busy, governors were instrumental in keeping order, you know, and, and like when a stocks, one of the primary things is that as a governor, when there are imbalances, when there are more too many buyers or too many sellers prior to the opening, let's say, you know, you're talking IBM, it's trading at $120 a share and there's a million shares for sale. You can't just open it and say, all right, I'm going to open it at 95. You know, it's down $25. You're not going to do that. that. That's not the way it works. So what they do is they, you know, they get a governor in there and they say, look, this is what we have. We're going to, they indicate it, meaning that now you see the last sale is 105. All right. And then they'll indicate it. And the specialist or designated market maker has to determine where he's willing to buy stock. Now you have all this stock for sale. So now now it's economics. Now there's a massive amount of supply. There's no demand. So it's going to go to a certain point. So what the governor does is he (laughs) had to sit there and help the, DMM determined the right pricing. You know, now it's not it's not an issue because you know every stock trades pre-market, so everyone knows prior to the opening that IBM is trading at you know 
a hundred dollars a share. It's down five dollars. But back then there wasn't that. There wasn't that liquidity prior to the opening. It was your yeah. opening. So you had to determine that all right, it's going to go down five five dollars. It's a Dow stock. So that you know, five points on a Dow stock, especially IBM, is going to knock the Dow down like 95 points. It had that much of an impact. So you have to you're making a decision for everybody in the world to see the market go down a hundred points on one with one stock. But generally, you if you take time and and people see that and say, oh my God, I was buying IBM at 107 yesterday. Now it's trading at hundred dollars. I'm going to buy more at 100 because I loved it at 107. So it attracted the other side because you slowed it down, and the governor's job was to slow it down to yeah. get the right price. And for the most part, I mean, there were, I think you know I must have done 2,000 of those type of openings. I had one of them where I had to go upstairs and explain. So oh, really? I, it was a, and, and somebody told me that you know that's a pretty good percentage because usually it's like 1% of your openings – they're going to ask you. Mine was less than one percent, so I think I did a pretty good job as far as that's concerned. But, yeah, you know, you 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 know, you you slow the process down. Now it's now it's different. I mean, the governor's a little more ceremonial and less. But if something's happening in the trading during the day, and a DMM is in trouble for whatever, Who's a, DMM? a designated market maker. He's okay. the they used to be a specialist. They're yeah. the ones that are at the post. And they trade the individual stocks, so that's a designated market maker. Okay, and wait. So you, I feel like you were wearing like five hats while you were in there. Well, I mean, you know, the governor was, you know, one thing. You know, you're a broker. You're, you're responsible for your orders, and you know, we all did. I mean, it was, you know, the 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 thing about one of the interesting things about working on the, the stock exchange is that anybody that was decent at what they did was a very, very good multitasker. You know, they could do more okay. than one thing at one time. And, you know, granted, your, you know, your mental acuity is maybe a little bit less on something else, but you're still, you know what's going on. Me, I, I had, I have horrible hearing now, but for some reason when I was in a trading crowd and there was something going on in a stock that was maybe, you know, 15 feet away, I would go over there and I would know what's going on because I heard, oh, okay. you know, the stock mentioned, or I see somebody I know who's been in the stock. So, you know, you may be looking at something, you might be talking about sports, but you're, you're always listening to what's going on around you because it yeah. impacts something you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And over your, was it 35 years or 38 years? Well, I would say 38 years total. Yeah. Over your 38 years in the stock exchange, what transitions did you see? Cause obviously there were massive transitions that occurred. Well, the first thing was um, when they went to decimals as opposed to fractions. Okay. So they used to trade in, you know, eighths and quarters and then sixteenths. And, and when they transitioned to decimals, it allowed technology to pretty much enter the New York Stock Exchange in a massive way. Yeah. The exchange, don't get me wrong, the exchange up until probably 19... 85 was about 30 years behind in technology. There were, I mean, the phones were like from the fifties. It was just, the technology was terrible. And, and from 1985 to like 95, 96, they basically transformed the New York stock exchange into, uh, uh, I'd say that it was, they put in technology that at the time, they only used 10% of it, but they, it, what it did is allowed them to expand that technology 
infinitely. So, yeah. you know, as, as time is going on, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars doing it. And it allowed them to, when they went to decimals, which was a huge, huge thing. Um, I think that it was 2000, maybe 2001 and 2002, probably 2001, I mean, after 9-11, it was in October. It changed the, the dynamic of trading, the markets, everything from that point on. So that was, that was the biggest, um, it's an improvement for some people. Me, I didn't really, I didn't find it an improvement. I found it killed my ability because I'm at that point, I was not the best in technology. And you really had to be because what we were given is we used to write on pads. They were, you know, maybe three inches by six inches and you'd trade and you'd write on the pad and, that was how you traded. Yeah. Now we had we had handhelds, which were these small, bigger than a cell phone, but not that much bigger. I mean, they were about maybe four inches by eight inches, and they weighed a couple of pounds. And you'd have a, a stylus, and you would punch, you know, you trade, and you trade with people, and you had to capture all the information by hitting a stylus. And, and they really worked it out, so it worked. I was terrible. It was like, oh, I'm going to trade with this guy, that guy, that guy. Well, I, you know, I, I hadn't written anything down. So what I would do is I would trade on my pad because I traded fast. You know, it was very fast. Yeah. But I wasn't fast on the machine. Yeah. And then I would put in everything afterwards. And oh, okay. That, yeah, that, you know, like I'd write everything down. You know, I bought 6000 at this price from this broker with that name, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd put it in afterwards. And the problem was because the exchange was very – um intent on making sure everything compared in the comparison. So all the trades were, you know, selling a thousand, I know buying a thousand, you know, the same price, you know, and everybody instantaneously, they wanted done. Mine was, I would trade with a guy at 1047 at 1051, I'd be putting it in. So the times would never line up. Yeah. And, you know, the clients were pissed off because that's where they were getting their reports. They weren't getting it from me verbally. They were getting it electronically. So I, I had to really learn how to use that stupid machine. Yeah. I was not good at it. Yeah. You know, they, I could imagine. Yeah. What they did is they increased, they spent a tremendous amount of money on technology for the brokers like myself and the machines that they came up with, the hands held they came up with were light years better. And I could trade very well with that. It was it, much easier. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And did you, was there ever an effect of like Robinhood or Fidelity or TD Ameritrade where now the regular citizen was trading on their phone? Like they now had access to the market. Did this ever affect anything or because you guys well, were institutional? You know, what it, you know what it was is when uh, actually Charlie Schwab was the first one to allow people, you know, to use their computer to trade. Yeah. What they did though, I mean, they were smarter than anybody else is that because they had to pay access to the New York Stock Exchange and every order that comes in, even if it's not executed, costs money. Yeah. What they did is they, instead of sending all of the computer generated orders they had, and at the time it wasn't, it was, you know, 2 million shares a day, but it was 2 million shares in 50 and 100 and 200 share lots. So it's a lot of orders. Yeah. And the exchange would have charged them a lot of money to enter those orders. They don't now, but back then when they first started, so what Charlie Schwab did, you know, he's got 3 million clients. 
why do I need to send my order to the New York Stock Exchange and pay them all this money when I can route that order flow to someone else to execute? At first, it didn't really work because the places that they were routing those orders, sending it to another exchange, you know, there were several or maybe three or four. And uh, there wasn't the liquidity. So they're like, if I want you wanted to buy a thousand shares of IBM, you know, at a certain price, he would send it out to another exchange. You wouldn't get executed. Even though yeah. in the New York Stock Exchange, you would have gotten executed. It didn't get executed there because there was no seller. Yeah. So they, they eventually got, you know, figured it out and they started getting buying order flow. And, you know, it was like a complicated process. But Charlie Schwab did it first. TD Ameritrade, you know, they they came in later. Uh, Fidelity came in later too, but it was mostly Schwab who, who started that whole thing. And then, you know, the other like regional brokerages would do it as well. But that was the start of it. And uh, Charlie Schwab for probably six years, they were listed on the New York Stock Exchange. He delisted and he stopped sending all of his orders, no matter from whoever, stopped sending it to the New York Stock Exchange for like six years. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then the exchange ended up rechanging, you know, how they charge people, and then they started sending their order flow back to the exchange. So all you know, it ends up all, all being about money, you know. I mean, it did yeah. because they, you know, everyone's fighting to get that order flow, get you know those accounts. Like Robinhood sells their order flow, you know, and and a lot of firms do that. They're not the only ones that do that, but a lot of firms do that. And they don't charge anything. Like if you enter an order on Robinhood or Acorns or any of these other, yeah. you know, they don't charge it. But what they're doing is they're routing that order to somebody who's going to take advantage of your order. You'll never notice it because it's going to be such a fractionally small amount. You know, could yeah. be, you know, you might have sold something for $99.59. Well, you might only get $99.58 because the price was... You would never know. You'd never know it because you sold it, you know, it was a penny. What's a penny? They do yeah. that 500 million times a day, every day, and it adds up. It's a lot of money, yeah. It's a lot of money, and it's free money. It doesn't cost them anything. Yeah. So, but, I mean, you know, why would you complain? You're getting an execution for free. Even if you have to give up two cents, it's it doesn't it's matter. Like, I remember when I was, like, 13 or 14, I had my first Fidelity account. And obviously at that age, you don't have that much money. So I had like a hundred bucks and I bought into a stock and it was $6. I go, you gotta be kidding me. Cause now I realized pretty quickly that the stock had to go up 20% for me to even break even. Right. Cause you had to sell it out for $6. So I learned the buy and hold strategy pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Most people, most people did. And, and what that did is that, you know, there was not a lot of volume because people didn't want to pay all that commission. Yeah. So- you know, they like, you know, they like General Electric. All right, well, you're paying $12 for commission. You know, that's 12%. Let's say if you, you know, it, it's it's 1.2% of the purchase price. Hmm. You know, geez, now I sell it. It's another one point. So I need to, to double whatever my commission is just to break even. So people would hold on to stocks. And, and back then, stocks, they would charge you a lot more than $12 for an execution. And literally there was a period in time where I, I mean, I know this because I knew the clearing part of it is there was a period in time where they were charging people two, three, $400 to clear a trade. Oh, it wow. cost them a dollar. Cost wow. them a dollar. I, as a matter of fact, I, my Morgan Stanley account, 
uh, I bought, I don't even remember what it was. I, it was, you know, maybe it was a $100,000 worth of something. And they charged me like $700 in commissions. And I called up and I said, first off, I didn't talk to a broker. I did it on my computer. All right. I went on my computer, my account. I opened it up. I bought. You know, oh, this is your own personal. Yeah. And they charged me. And I said, and I called my broker, my my financial advisor. And I said, that's unacceptable. And he went and had the commission killed. I, I think I paid like $18. But I mean, think about it. People don't pay attention and they're, they're paying. Oh, yeah. So quick. I mean, it's so beneficial because I learned pretty quickly to buy and hold. But now I have people that are my age, 20s. And they're like, oh, dude, Robinhood's sick. You can get in and get out. I'm like, you're yeah, not well, spending, I, spending like, That's a huge part of, of what, what the volatility that you see in, in individual stocks is, is that retail investor, which, you know, it, it's, it's good and it's bad. Probably more good than bad because, yeah. it, you know, the reality is it doesn't cost anything to clear a trade. There, it doesn't. Yeah. Electronic, you know, it's like a, you go on your computer and, you know, it, it doesn't cost anything. It's an electronic transaction. It's a couple of zeros, a couple of ones, and they merge together. Yeah. really doesn't cost anything. So for them to charge anything, I mean, they probably should only because it's a better revenue stream. But yeah. that's their business model is to not charge. And then they have they get money on the back end from selling the order flow and information and data. Which is, you know, I look, I'm old school, but I have no problem with them selling data because yeah. you get something for free and they, and your cost is that that data. And I know that your generation doesn't believe that, but but yet, I have no problem. I get Google. They can. They don't believe it, but yet they still would rather go to the place where it's free yeah. than go to the place where they're charging. And that's why Fidelity... Charles Schwab, they all had to turn over to the free products because the one person had the free. It just, it is what it is. Yeah. I, you know, it's the way the world is now, you know, and, and it's good because you get people involved. And I think that the, the unfortunate thing about a Robin Hood or any, anything like that. And then, you know, we can talk about Bitcoin because I can rip that one, yeah. but uh, the, it, it's good because people can invest for, nothing and if it doesn't work they can get out of it and it's only going to cost them the loss of the money that they didn't make or the profits that they have you know and it's not there yeah they're also learning about investing oh yeah so i'd I'd rather you take the thousand or a hundred dollars and leave it in the robin hood account and then come back in a year and you're like oh it's two thousand dollars or it's five hundred dollars but you still have it's it's fine uh you know there's been i mean there have been day traders, guys that specifically that's all they do all day long. Um, you know, they've been they've been around forever because of the electronic access to markets and the, and the, yeah. the cost of executions. Now it doesn't cost them anything, so there's more of them. Uh, <clears throat> it's a it's a dangerous game. I think that I think people, if they understood the risks of what they're doing, you know, and how they're doing it, not so much to the market itself, but for their own, their own money. Yeah. Understood the risks a little bit better. I'd feel more comfortable with it. That that's my thing is I, I think people don't, you know, you, there's an old saying, and I think I'm the one who invented it. Everyone's a genius in a rising market. Everybody is, everybody's the smartest person in the world. Yeah, they are. 
because I bought something at 15, it's trading at 30. All right. Well, number one, it's trading at 30. It doesn't mean anything until you sell it. So that's the yeah. first. Now, I mean, everybody's a genius, but nobody sells. And then when things go wrong, you know, every, they want to blame everybody else. But you know what? You had a 100% profit in something. You know, you have take to have something to get out. Yeah, you got to take something. And I, and I lecture college kids, you know, and I'm, for years I've been lecturing about this, is that the in is important because, yeah, you know, you get into something. <clears throat> everyone's in is pretty good because the idea that you bought it, that price is, is important, but it's not as important as owning that particular security. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if something's $100 and you bought it, you like it enough to spend a hundred dollars a share. Because yeah. You have an idea that that stock is going to be go higher. So the price, the in is your in is always good. It's yeah. the out that's important. It's the being able to, well, it's down 10% markets up, but the stock's down 10%. I'm selling it. I lost $10. It is what it is. Live, yeah. to, live to fight another day. What ends up happening is people don't have an out an exit strategy. They only have an in strategy. The in strategy is you like something, you buy it. Got to be able to know how to sell it. The selling is the much more people, it's the harder thing to do because people become enamored by profits. They become in love with making money. You have to know at some point, there's a, there's a point where that will no longer exist. It's going to turn around. Uh, you know, things don't go up forever. There's a million different, you know, and there's a million people on in history that have lost fortunes because they didn't know how to get out. They know how to get in. Like I said, you can get in. Any in is a good in because there's a reason you bought it. It's the out that's important. So what do you advise in the out? if someone- well, You know what? They, there is, there are certain people have very disciplined strategies and this is, doesn't hold water very well because everybody now wants to make a killing on everything because the market has acted very well in a very dis, very tough time. Market's done very well. But my my thing is, whatever your out is, if you say the market, stock goes up 30%, and you know, yeah. I mean, it's a stretch in a lot of stocks, but if the stock goes up 30%, you get out. Stock goes down 15%, you get out. So whatever you're deciding that your percentage gain on the upside, half of that on the downside, you get out. And there are numerous guys that have made fortunes, and it's taken them a long time to do it. But the guy, for example, this guy in San Francisco, Billy O'Neill, that was his strategy. If it goes down 10%, I don't care how much I love the stock, I get out of it. If it goes up 20%, I don't care how, where I think the stock's going, I get out of it. He may have another entry point higher, or he may have an entry point lower, but that's what he does. It's his trading. Yeah. If you buy something at 100, at 120, he's out, or at 90, he's out. And he never had a losing year. Never had a losing losing year. So, I mean, he's had years where the S&P has beaten him, but over the long term, he's above what the S&P has returned over the last year. He doesn't trade anymore, but for 45 years, he traded – and. His long-term strategy is above what the S&P is. So he is long-term wise. Not saying that that works for everybody, but you have to have you have to have some strategy. You have to know that if, if it's not a price, 
it's a P, you know, price earnings multiple. Like if a stock is trading at a P of 16 and you bought it, now it's trading at a P of 22, whatever. I'm just throwing numbers out. You just need some variable to say, hey, this is enough. You need, yeah, you need to have something to say, that's my trigger point to sell, right? And then yeah. you can always buy it later. You know, you buy it again. You say, well, now it's trading. But you can't always have that profit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can look at profits and say, shit, I could have done better. I could have made more money. But what do you say when you're losing money? Yeah. You know? Me, I, you know, that that's that's an old school way. You know, it, it's you want to, you know, you have risk. And I think that like people invest in Bitcoin, that money that they've invested in Bitcoin should only be money that they've segregated in their like in their life that is set for risk. That's yeah. not that's not like, you know, your 401k because granted your 401k probably won't be you know impacted until 20 years from now or 25 years from now but you have to be very wary of of very very risky investments and to me that's that's one of the things i think people um older generation you know they've already figured that risk thing out it's the younger generation doesn't really have the concept of true risk so yeah no i hear that actually, i definitely yeah, that actually would be like a really good book for a young author, a smart young author to write about where people like, you know, millennials and Gen X's and Gen Z's would sit there and read it and say, well, that makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, listening to me say it is, well, he's, you know, he's an old guy, you know, he's, yeah. uh, you know, he's a boomer, right? Nobody wants to listen to the boomers. But the fact is, you know, we didn't get where we got by being stupid, you know? Yeah. So, no, I definitely hear that. I definitely do. So tell us, what are you up to now? I'm, I'm hearing rumors about maybe a show or something. What's going yeah, on? We're, uh, funny you mention that. <laughs> we're uh, My uh, partners from my old firm at, at Frank Maglo, which was a listed firm for 20 some odd years, 29 years. Um, one day, one of the guys that worked with us and he only worked for us with a, for a short time. He came up with an idea that he thought that, you know, he was there and he, he was there for a year and a half, maybe two years. And he said it was the greatest two years of his life. <laughs> and he spoke to a, a friend of his who happens to be a screenwriter. And he was just going over some of the funny stories that he experienced in two years. And that screenwriter had said, you know, that you should get these guys together and see if they want to put together, um, something like a package for a show because it's a really interesting time. It was a very interesting time frame, And uh, <clears throat> we had a meeting at the old homestead and uh, you know, we were telling, we, I mean, it was great to see everybody cause I hadn't seen him in a while. And we spent like three hours there. I mean, they were trying to get us out of the, the restaurant, but we were there for like three hours drinking and eating. And we were just going over stories. We were laughing hysterical. And, and the writer, the screenwriter was saying, this is, definitely could be a show. So what we, what we've been doing is we've been going over, um, giving him kind of the, uh, context of this show is going to start basically on the crash, October 19th, 1987. So what it's going to do, it's going to bring the viewer back to that time frame, which was, I have to say, I mean, I was there, so I, you know, it was a very, very exciting time. 
And this was Black Monday, right? Yeah, it's Black Monday. And but what, actually, what happened, be, for everyone to understand, what happened on Black Monday? Well, on Black Monday, um, the the stock exchange crashed. It went down 22% in one day, which was the largest uh, percentage drop in history. <clears throat> also, point-wise, it was way more than any point-wise drop in the Dow in history, but it, it's more important about percentages. So it was 22%. Um, you know, the value of the New York Stock Exchange went down, which was, I think at the time, it was close to a trillion dollars in value was lost in one day. Wow. Uh, pretty much on the opening, because the market opened down 600 and something points. So, and it was, you know, we're, you're talking about volumes and, and a lot of everything that was done was done manually. So the customer would call up, give you an order. There was some electronic uh, trading, uh, very little. And there were machine orders that would come out and they were basically just printed out from a terminal. And that was the technology. So you went from, you know, on a, let's say on the previous Monday, I think the volume was like 63 million shares on the previous Monday. That Monday we executed 680 million shares. So it was 10 times the volume of the previous week. So you're talking about, we were busy the previous Monday, and this was just a torrent of business and orders and, and clients were panicked and it was out of control. So that's where we're starting. Um, and basically, I, the, one of the key things, and I, ho I hope that when we get this thing finally, uh, you know, <clears throat> in front of a camera, it comes out this way. But I think one of the things that was important is that we were all pretty good at what we did. Prior to that, you know, because you know, I had five years experience and, and other guys had eight years and three years and whatever. So we were kind of experienced. No one had ever experienced anything like that. And what it did was it, it basically we had a our firm had processes in place and our like, um, you know, the way we executed orders and the way we kept track of things and the way we, you know, was very, <clears throat> was very old school, you know rigid it worked that day it worked so well that by 4 30 every one of our clients had their reports they knew exactly what they bought exactly what they sold they were recapped on every order they had and we're talking we executed probably 90 million shares our firm wow so we were 15 percent of the volume in the new york stock exchange out of our one booth and every client had everything they needed at 4.30. So yeah. any talking we did to a clients after 4.30 was like, oh my God, what just happened? You know, it was nothing to do with business. It was all about what we had just gone through. And the next day, every client, every one of them called up and thanked us. And really, oh, wow. how rare is that, that your client, we would thank them too, because they gave us so much business. But they all thanked us because they're, whoever they were dealing with, we were the only firm that was, you know, like basically settled. Everything was settled with them by 4.30. There were guys, you know, one firm they were dealing with, They by 7 o'clock, they still didn't know what they had bought and sold. Oh, and wow. Because they had to figure out because their clients had, you know, everyone needed to be whole. Everybody, you know, every one of our clients, 4.30 was done. And yeah. our systems worked, you know, and, and and that was the thing that we we learned, you know, <clears throat> It wasn't about, you know, skill set about, you know, how you trade and, you know, 
it wasn't anything like that. It was about processes that were in place that worked and they were fabulous. I mean, yeah, you know, and you know, the, the back end of it was more of a problem, but that was nothing. The clients never saw any part of the back end problems, you know, clearing and, and all that other stuff and the things that backed up the systems weren't ready to handle. Clients didn't see that. They only saw that when I hung up the phone with them at 430, all right, we're good. Anybody else have anything? And they'd say, no, we're all good. Yeah, and that's process mastery one-on-one, just the way you're able to, and this could apply to anything in your life. Like when you when you work on your job or when you do anything, when you start your business, wherever you're going, you need to have the process and systems in place yeah. to really get it going as yeah, well. You know, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's mundane, but, you know, for anybody that's watching this, they, you know, they're building a business. You You should have, always have a structure in place. I know that, you know, people like to be creative and create new scenarios on a daily basis. All that does is it, it, it sows confusion, you know, yeah. and, and I, granted, you know, technology has helped people become more efficient and be able to build things quicker and more efficiently, but you still have to have set processes in place and, make sure that they have enough ability to expand whatever that process is, you know, as business gets better. So, yeah, you know. absolutely. And back to where you were. So we're on the exchange starts black Monday. I know we had a little detour there. Yeah. The show that you were referring to. Yeah. Yeah. So we, what we're doing is it's going to be from, I mean, you know, if this gets picked up and it becomes successful, the, the, the idea is that it, we're going to go through the course of, of that firm and our business from Black Monday in 87 to uh, September 11th, 2001. Oh, wow. So that would be the last, you know, if we, if we, if it's successful and it works, there's going to be a complete arc to that and it's going to end on that. So there's, there's like a beginning and an end, but it, it's not going to be, you know, one season. This is more like, hopefully there'll be, because we, you know, we, we have these meetings, we have these Zoom meetings and uh, they're supposed to go for an hour. And they go for two hours, three hours, because we just sit there and ramble on about stories. And I, I got to tell you, you know what? We laughed so hard. You know, it was great memories. And, you know, we, we and we're still very good friends. And we're still, you know, I, I respected everybody I work with. It's, you know, there was never, you, know, you have a family and you fight and there was arguments. And, you know, I mean, I used to argue all the time with my, my senior partner. I used to yell at him all the time because he, you know, He's a great guy. He's very good at what he did, but he was very headstrong. Yeah. yeah. I'm the head clerk and he's telling me, I'm going to say, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> no, this is how it's going to work. Yeah. And, I actually and, was able to hop on one of these zoom calls to do the first reading. Yeah. The camaraderie and the excitement of this reading was incredible. Yeah. It was like, fun. I know this you know, is going to be something cool. Yeah. It was fun. And, and you know what? And I think that, you know, when we tighten up the dialogue and, and, you know, then the process is that you have to go and present it in front of um, somebody who might be willing to buy it or, you know, produce it. So I don't know any of that. I mean, I have, I know people in the industry, uh, you know, they, they said that when you get done with the, the actual first script, the pilot, uh, you know, to send it to them, they're not going to produce it, but they want to look at it so they can point us in the right direction and one of the other principals in the, uh, you know, in this whole production, he has friends that are in the industry as well. Plus the screenwriter knows people. So 
hopefully we'll get in front of a few people. Somebody will see it, you know, uh, have an interest in it. And, you know, who knows? I could be like Shonda Rhimes, right? Sold to Netflix for $900 million. Let's do it. You would have known. You, you knew the beginning. You saw the beginning of it. Look at this. I love it. Yeah, this is the first release of anything regarding it. Yeah, absolutely. They're, this is the first time I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think any of the other people have talked publicly. I mean, you talk with your friends because it's something. Yeah. But this is the first time I think we've mentioned, uh, you know, the show publicly. And, um, you know, I feel comfortable talking about it because I think it, it will be. I, I think people enjoy because, you know, the characters are going to be very unique. Uh, you know, it does definitely have a New York Italian. Yeah, uh, for sure. There is. Yeah. There, well, we were. I mean, you know, we had, uh, you know, we had 15 people working for the firm. There were 14 Italians and one Irish guy. So, you know, <laughs> you know and it wasn't there was no bias or, or prejudice. It was just, you know, you hire people you like and, you know, down on the trading floor. That's what we hired. Yeah. No, I hear we that. A lot I of mean, people, too. Yeah, it was a cool group. It was fun. Peter, I appreciate the time. Is there any last comments or anything you want to leave the people with? Well, Jordan, I think that, you know what? We went over a lot of things. I think that if somebody's watching this podcast, you know, to me, um, having a podcast, I think people should walk away and learn something. So hopefully, you know, me promoting my show, that's one thing. But you know, there, there are certain things that I think that, you know, we went over that I think would help people, um, you know, and I think that's the, that's the benefit. And that's what you're, you know, if you strive for that and, and your, the, your viewers or your listeners strive to learn something from podcast, then the podcast was a success. So absolutely. Me, and even if it is, even if it is just learning about what the stock exchange is like and being in there and you having 38 years experience and learning how you maneuvered all that and the importance of communication and process. Yeah. I mean, there's value and nuggets here all over the place. Don't you I worry. Hope so. <laughs> I hope I didn't, don't, bore anybody, you know, I, I don't think that's possible. I really appreciate the time. And this was really awesome. Thank you, Jordan. Where, I, appreciate you, I appreciate you inviting me on and I, you know, you want to do this again after the show is released we can i'll promote let's the hell out of it let's do it we'll get the whole gang on here yeah we can do actually you know what that would be a good idea when we get a little closer that would be probably i think the the people that you know listen and, and watch your podcast i think they would love that i think that would be hysterical that would be that would be funny that would be really good is there anywhere where people can find you i know you're on cnbc sometimes well, I, I have a uh, a website, which I haven't really updated, but uh, I've been told by several people and a couple of people that used to read what I wrote. It's uh, peterpcosta.com. And uh, what I do is I usually post, I have, I haven't done it in the, over a year, but I'm going to start again because I, I have an affiliation with a, uh, a money manager and, and she wants me to start posting uh, things that she can use as well. So yeah. My first, my next post is going to be a bit about Bitcoin because I'm really like wound up about it. But I, you know, I know that we, that wasn't the whole point of this. But uh, I probably post that within the next week. So if you go online, you okay. look at it. And yeah, I'll and drop that. If people, you know, reach out to me and comment because I, 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 I like comments. I think that even if it's negative, and it's well thought out, I, I learn more from negative comments than positive ones. So, yeah, I'll definitely leave that in the show notes for sure. Okay, great. awesome. This has been great. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, 
We'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.